Well, you and I live in a cultural context that is not very unified. We are easily divided along political grounds, and so uh, even when we try to unite around a political party or a political candidate, there doesn't seem to be quite the agreement that we're looking for. I mean, if you don't believe me, just wait and wait six months. We'll be in a political season again doing that. Um, uh, we're, we're easily divided upon social opinions, so uh, we're, we're, you know, arguing over whether or not black lives matter or blue lives matter or if we're woke or asleep or whatever any of those terms mean or if we're nationalist or, you know, just name it, any ideology out there, it will divide people. And we're also divided on personal practices, we divide over whether or not we're going to send our kids to, to public school or we're going to homeschool them or send them to a Christian school. Or we divide over how we parent our kids or different birthing options and things like that. People actually divide over those things. But occasionally, we'll try to rally around something together, don't we? Sports is a big one, so we're in the midst of the Women's World Cup. But it seems like anytime the, the World Cup rolls around, we all automatically become uh, a fan of soccer, even if we've never watched soccer a day in our life, and we're rooting for the home team, or the Olympics, if soccer is not your thing, and we get very patriotic and we get very passionate about you know sports like curling or something like that. Or we try to connect around a shared interest or a hobby like Maybe working out is your thing or running and so um, whatever it might be. So you sign up on Strava and you give each other kudos and you complete the daily exercise milestones so that you can receive those. But sometimes these rallying points are created from tragic events. I mean, just three years ago, the 2020 pandemic united us uh, sort of against a common threat. And so you heard amongst all of the other you know expressions during that time was, we're all in this together. Or maybe wearing pink in October for Breast Cancer Awareness Month is something you like to do with others. Or you have tragedies like the, the Boston Marathon bombing that happened some years ago. And so then we're all, all automatically Boston strong and we're buying t-shirts and hats that say that. And then in, until another shooting or tragic event happens, and so Charleston, South Carolina a number of years ago, and then all of a sudden we're Charleston strong. And even with 9-11, which I would say was the most unified I'd e I have ever seen our nation in my lifetime. But all of these things, whether they're tragic or good or fun, all of them tend to kind of, sort of, kind of fade into the background, don't they? They don't really last. So with each passing day, they fade more and more away until they disappear altogether. So if these types of things can't unite us, what or who can do that? So in 17 verses, the 17 verses that Ashley just read for us, Paul mentions the name of Jesus 12 times. And that's, that's an enormous amount to repeat somebody's name over and over again. But it makes sense because Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ. One author said, a true apostle points away from self and points to Christ to whom apostles bear witness. Which means to say, if you, if you hear of somebody who calls themselves an apostle nowadays and they aren't doing that just explicitly, they're not an apostle. 
And this is what Paul is doing in these first 17 verses of his letter. He is pointing away from himself. He's not even really giving a hint to himself and pointing to the one who brings ultimate unity in a fractured world, Jesus Christ. Because Paul is not coming in to say, this is how you're to relate to the culture, Corinthians. This is how I want you to kind of take it in. This is what I want you to consume. This is how I want you to reach these others in this city. No, rather, he's coming in and saying, this is how you are to live as Christians together, as the church, in a world that is seeking to find its unifying center in everything else but Jesus. And so I want to look at this passage today in three ways. One is through the framework of Christ, because that's what Paul is doing here. So the framework of Christ. Two, through the thankfulness in Christ. And then three, the unity around Christ. So the framework of Christ, the thankfulness in Christ, and the unity around Christ. So number one, the framework of Christ. So the city of Corinth during this particular period was a major metropolitan area. So the population was not even close to the, to the size of our major cities that we have now, like uh, New York and L.A. And, and places like that. But, but, but during that time it was, and the density and the diversity of this particular city was exactly like our major cities today, our major metropolitan areas. It began as a, as a resettled uh, island for Roman veterans, but it quickly grew uh, to be a place where, where commerce and trade happened uh, and many aspects of city life were attracted to. It, there was all sorts of different people that were in Corinth, Greeks and Syrians and Jews, so people from all races, all cultures, all various religions were practiced there, and, and these re- religions impinged upon almost every aspect of city life, and also into many parts of the church, as we'll see. So Paul sets out to remind the Corinthians of who they are in these opening verses in three ways. The first thing he says right away is they are the church in Corinth. He's reminding them of these things. They represent the, the, the local church, the Little C Church that we talked about a few weeks ago. The Little C Church in the city of Corinth. Essentially, Paul is saying, you are the lampstand in Corinth, as Jesus referred to churches as. You are the light in this city, and you are to be united as such. That is who you are. Second, Paul says they are sanctified in Christ Jesus. So if you notice that word sanctified is in the past tense. I think a lot of times if we've been Christians for very long, we like to take sanctification is that thing we like to camp on and say, well, I am involved in my sanctification. I am to be in the word and prayer and I I am to be being sanctified myself. And, And while that's true, there is some work involved in that. We also have to recognize that as Christians, we are also sanctified past tense by Jesus. And so Paul is reminding the Corinthians of this. The the Bible uses this term sanctification to to point towards the status as set apart and holy, much like uh, what Allison read for us in Deuteronomy, where uh, the author is trying to say, this is who you are. 
God did not choose you because you were special. God did not choose you because you were uh, elites or you were a part of this uh, certain social status. God chose you in, uh, out of his grace and mercy towards you. And so this is what Paul is reminding them of. You are a sanctified people. You are set apart. You are holy because of what you possess in Christ through your union with Jesus. This is what makes you sanctified. This is who you are. So Paul essentially here is calling the Corinthians to rise up to what God has already made them to be in Christ. So it reflects the same sort of logic if you remember the, uh, the command to the Israelites in Joshua chapter 1 in the Old Testament when he says to them, go in and possess the land. And we know just because we came through Genesis, we know what land he's referring to there. This land that God has already given to them. It is already promised to them. They already own it. And all Joshua has to say to them is, go in and possess the land for God has given it to you. This is yours. And this is the same logic that Paul is using with the Corinthians. Own your sanctification. Own who you are in Christ. So this is a practical holiness that they both possess and at the same time are to be living out as a body. So Paul is calling them to live out in practice what it means to belong to the Creator, what it means to belong to God, to live out who they are in Christ within the context of Corinth. Third thing that Paul says, they're called to be saints together with all those who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So two things here. First, Paul is reminding them that they are, again, set apart, that they are different than the culture around them and the other peoples around them, the other groups that they might be involved in around them. They are different. They are set apart because they are set apart for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But secondly, is Paul's attack against lone wolf Christianity. Because Paul not only attaches them to the local church in Corinth, but he also attaches them to the global church. Paul is telling them you, that you are not going at this alone. And he wants them to know and to see that they're, they're, not, they're not self-sufficient. They're not in isolation from other Christian communities, but they are, in, uh, they are, are, are bound to the global church. And so while we may be autonomous as a church in how we govern ourselves, because I know some of you are asking, well, isn't, aren't we just kind of like lone out there? We don't really have a, a denomination that we're reporting to necessarily and, and, and different things like that. So that would be our autonomy. So we could, we're able to govern ourselves the way we want and to choose to do certain things in our local context. And we might be autonomous in that, but we are not autonomous in regards to the traditions and practices and teachings of other Christians and other churches in other places and in other times. It's why we recited the Nicene Creed together. That's from another time that that was given to us, and we still recite it with the universal church. And this seems to be the spirit of the age within the church these days, um, 
deconstruction seems to be on the rise, apparently, and de-churching and, and things like that. But deconstructionists believe that somehow, some way, uh, their experience is unique. That, it's, that, that no other Christian in history has ever had to wrestle with the hard sayings of the Bible, ever had to wrestle with the different theological mysteries that you find in the Bible, or had to wrestle with the, the, the unexplainable sufferings that you might see in the Scriptures, but you also might experience yourself. So instead of entering into the oneness, the unity, that is found with every confessing and worshiping believer in Christ throughout space and time, they instead reject it to go their own foolish way. And it's within this same sort of context into which Paul is speaking. Because what we see in Corinth is the same thing we see in our Western society. It's an individualistic culture. That, that says the same thing that our individualistic culture is saying today in the 21st century, you do you. Because you are the master of your destiny. You are, you are the master of your faith. And so the most important person in your life is you. So go out and make it in this world. And Corinth was the place to capitalize on this particular idea. As one commentator said, he said that the ideal of the Corinthian was the reckless development of the individual. The merchant who made his gain by all and every means, the man of pleasure surrendering himself to every lust, the athlete steeled to every bodily exercise and proud in his physical strength are the true Corinthian types. In a word, the man who recognized no superior and no law but his own desires. And unfortunately, this sort of ideal, this Corinthian ideal, was seeping into the church in Corinth, much like it seeps into the church today, causing, uh, causing the Corinthians to ask many of the same questions that you and others may be asking in the church and in Western society, like, how do we handle disagreements amongst God's people? How do we do that? How do we live in peace as a church? Um, what is it? What is uh, what? Is, what's sexual ethics all about? How do I how do I know how to handle all of these things that are being thrown at me from every angle and from every corner? What does a Christian sexual ethic look like when promiscuity is the cultural norm? What do we do with that? In what ways does the gospel shape the institution of marriage to not look like the world? In, in what ways does the gospel shape um, singleness? How should we relate to the cultural customs and practices of those with whom we disagree on, on matters of faith? Maybe you're asking that question. Or how can the gospel tear down barriers that you and I have built between ourselves and others, particularly within the church? And so even as the Corinthian church are, are asking these questions and and struggling with, with these things in their life together, 
Paul still begins his letter with a surprising note of thanksgiving toward them. And I believe the way he's able to do this, the only way that he's able to do this, as we'll see as we go along in this first letter to the Corinthians, is because his thankfulness is not found in in who the Corinthians are. He's not pointing to people and saying, I like you a lot and you've served me in certain ways and so I'm thankful for you. The only way that Paul is very thankful for the Corinthians in the way that he is, is because of what Christ is doing in the midst of Corinth. Look at verses 4 through 9 in the text there. Paul says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that, you, that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless, in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, thankfulness is a great way to give yourself a, a bird's eye view of what God is doing in your life, even when things Uh, look grim to you. You can always find something to be thankful for. I think that's a fact. You can always find something to be thankful for, no matter the situation. Now, you may only think of thankfulness once a year in November, sitting around a dinner table with a bunch of really good food, but this is an important practice to keep all year because it reminds you of what is truly most important. Even in our text, Paul says, I give thanks to my God always for you. Always. And the reason Paul can still be so thankful for the Corinthians is because God has been so faithful to Paul and to them. In verse 9, Paul says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul is giving thanks for God's faithfulness for saving the Corinthians. He's faithful. I'm thankful that he has been faithful to you in this way. And the reason he can be so thankful is only, again, remember, because of Jesus. His thankfulness arises from the person and work of Christ. Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, is the one who has conquered every one of our enemies. Satan, sin, and death. And so Paul knows what Jesus is capable of in someone's life because he has experienced this personally. Jesus has not only changed Paul's mind, but he's changed Paul's life work. He's changed Paul's loves and desires. He has has completely transformed the trajectory of Paul's life. And Paul knows this to be true. If you just look in the book of Acts, chapter 22, this is how Paul describes this very change. And I just want to read it to you. Paul says, I am a Jew. I was born in the city of Tarsus in the country of uh, uh, Cilicia. When I, when I was a young man, I lived here in Jerusalem. I went to Gamaliel's school and learned all about the law of our early fathers.
As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth, and you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have been what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. So Paul can have so much faith and he can have so much confidence in what, uh, what Jesus is doing in the Corinthian church, even in all of their corruption, even in their division. Paul can give thanks because Paul fully believes because it has happened to him that the gospel of Jesus Christ changes everything. So essentially, Paul is thankful for their identity in Christ. So you see, the, the, the Corinthians lived in a city where, where status and upward mobility was everything. And you were responsible to build an identity that suited this sort of lifestyle. So what Paul is saying is that your identity is no longer connected with who you are and who you know and how much money you make and what sort of status symbols that you have, you have a new identity in Christ. You no longer have to live in order to build an identity, but you can live into the identity that has been given to you by God in Christ. And you know what? That is true for you as well. How hard are you working to build an identity so that others will think a certain way about you. Maybe you do this on social media. A lot of people do this on social media, and I know you've said this when you've looked at other people's social media accounts, and you go, they aren't like that in person. And the reason why is because they are building an online persona, an online identity, so that they can get lights, so they can sell a product, they can do whatever. Maybe you get this from your job. Maybe you, maybe you work longer hours than you should because you want your coworkers or your bosses or whoever it is to think well of you. He or she is a great worker. They're here uh, when the lights go out and they're here when the lights come on in the morning. Or maybe you're a people pleaser. Maybe you're running around killing yourself making sure everyone in your life is happy or not disappointed in you. And that's how you're building your identity. You want everyone to think well of you. Well, if you are a Christian, you already have an identity that has been given to you by God. So you can rest easy. 
You don't have to impress anyone. You don't have to build an online persona. You don't have to, you don't have to work late hours. You don't have to please everyone in your life. And let, just let me just tell you that I, as a pastor, there is absolutely no way that I can uh, prove myself or please everyone in this building. And I make no apologies for that. And you can't either. So live into, into what God has, has called you to in Christ. And then just let me ask you, so those who are not Christians and you're here today, how tired are you? How tired are you of, of, of trying to impress and trying to please and trying to build this, this identity? How tired of you are, are you of doing that? How tired are you of trying to create something that will disappear the second you die? I always tell people this in, a, in an encouraging way, but it doesn't sound like that. But the minute that you die, if, I don't care how important you are at your job. The minute you die, the person behind you moves up into your position. You're forgotten. Life moves on. The world still turns. And yet we destroy ourselves trying to make ourselves look like something that we're not. So Paul has some hard things to say to the Corinthian church. And, he, and we will see it laid out in his letter to them uh, in the pages ahead. But he still begins his letter with thankfulness for them. Because you have to understand that, that, the, that the resurrection of the dead, uh, the resurrection of a person, is the ultimate accomplishment. There is nothing better, there is nothing bigger than resurrection. So for Paul, as we'll hear about later in his letter, the resurrection was the very foundation of his hope in this life and his hope in the life to come, but it was also his hope in the life of his fellow believers in Corinth. And it's your hope as well that Jesus Christ not only lived a perfect life and died a death that you deserved to die, he also defeated death so that you could live. That you could both live now but also into eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. Because it's where we acquire, this is where we acquire the unity that we find as the church. Our unity is to be around Christ. Look at verses 10 through 17. Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there is no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by, by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. Paul's just covering all his bases there. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. 
So one thing to understand immediately is that the divisions that Paul is referring to here are not divisions over doctrine. They're, they're, not, they're not that, that big. They're, they're, they're not theological controversies, at least not in this moment that Paul is referring to. They are divisions over power. And because of this, at least one commentator said it would be better to translate this word uh, division that we have translated as divisions probably in your copy of Scripture. Uh, it's better to translate this word as splits or tears because it just communicates the meaning a little bit more because what the word split means in the Greek, it, it's signifying uh, like a tear that a fishing net receives that needs to be mended back together in order for it to work again and to be fruitful. Or, or a splitting apart that needs to be put back together. So Paul is speaking directly into this splitting apart of the Corinthian church that the Corinthian church is experiencing because he knows that to, to continue in this way with splits and fissures and divisions that the church will be destroyed. Now, we all know what this feels like to be divided over things that are not theological and seem somewhat silly. And again, let's just go back in time to 2020. Mask or no mask? Vaccine or no vaccine? Should we meet in person or should we not meet? Or even during that time, just, just kind of throw into the mix the issues of, of race that were so heated during that particular moment and how everybody started choosing sides and everything started, started kind of uh, hitting the fan a little bit. And if you think those are silly, I, I would agree with you. But at the same time, I know of churches who lost half, if not all, of their congregation over these four things. And the reason why is not because it's, it's I want to win this argument or, or I think this is right and if, you're, and if you're not doing this, you're not right or whatever it might, it might be. But within each of these is some relegation of power that one group can hold over another group. And this is the kind of splitting and tearing apart that was happening in the church in Corinth. They were not only dividing over things like the Lord's Supper and church discipline and the resurrection, as we'll see in the future uh, of uh, sermons in this letter, but according to Chloe's people, and I love that, uh, this little kind of side note uh, that Paul says, according to Chloe and her people, who Chloe, uh, we, we suspect, was, was some sort of businesswoman in Corinth who was friends with Paul and kind of helped him uh, get the church started in Corinth, but apparently the Corinthians were not being uh, completely forthright with Paul. And they were saying, hey, look, we're, we're disagreeing over a couple of things, and we kind of need your help here. And, you know, the Lord's Supper, we're a little confused on that, which is to be expected. It's kind of a new practice and things like that. But according to Chloe's people, Paul says, there is way more happening than you are letting on. And he says there's quarreling among you. And this is what the quarreling looks like. It is, it is a party-minded spirit that is growing within the church. And so Paul says, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul. 
or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, who is also Peter, or I follow Christ. And so they were choosing sides around who they liked or who they were baptized by. And so they said, you know what? I follow Paul. And Paul knows exactly what to say. He's an, he's an apostle, for goodness sakes. He knows what's up. He, he's the one I'm following. And whoever wants to come with me, we're going to follow Paul. And, and you have somebody off to the side, well, I like Apollos, even though he's not even mentioned that much in the scriptures. I like Apollos. He's got a cool name. I don't know. But I'm going to follow him. And if you agree with me, come with me. And then somebody steps, uh, you know, ups the ante a little bit and says, well, I'm going to follow Peter. He's, he's essentially the founder of the church. I mean, Jesus spoke to him, on this rock I will build my church, so I'm going to follow Peter. And then you have the ultra-spiritual who are saying, well, I follow Christ. And Paul is saying, all of you are wrong. All of you are wrong because you have no good intended for this sort of following they were they were taking what they were actually doing was taking on the identity and the practices of the culture around them and they were making these competitive power plays within the church and this is serious because to quarrel in this way paul says is to divide christ as one commentator graphically puts it, since Paul calls the church Christ's body, it is almost as if this power play tears apart the limbs of Christ. And so what Paul is saying to this church is that when you begin to form teams and, and factions and divisions around certain people, you are not doing anything good. You are actually ripping the church apart. You are actually not being a witness of a unified body in a fractured world like the city of Corinth when you do this. And this is why it's so serious when a church splits it's not just because we have these disagreements, so we're going to take our ball and go this way, and we're going to stay here. It's that you are splitting the body of Christ. You are splitting apart Christ because there's disunity within the church. And this is the appeal that Paul is making to the Corinthians here. Unity. And this might seem like a silly question to ask. But I wonder if there is anything that you hold on to right now that has the potential to split this church. Maybe it's something that I've said. Maybe it's something that somebody else has said. Maybe it's uh, you don't like the way Stephen sings. Or uh, maybe, it's something, yeah, maybe it is something silly. Maybe the coffee's not hot enough. I don't know. There, there are little things that we, we, we kind of giggle at that. But those are, those are things that when the root uh, or the seed of bitterness roots down, the result of that is a split church. Because unity is not, not going to be found in the power plays that the Corinthians and you and I try to, to, to muster up, uh, no matter how spiritual they may look. Unity, unity amongst Christians can only be attained in Christ. 
Look at verse 10. This is what Paul begins this section with. He says, I appeal to you, brothers. I beg you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, no splitting among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. So three things Paul is looking for in this call to unity in Christ. One is that they all agree. So this phrase literally means to speak the same, to speak the same, which was a political term used by uh, describing political parties, differing political parties that were free from division, even though they might have disagreed on little things. They were not taking this and speaking past one another. They were, they, were, they were listening and responding well, even if they disagreed. This is what Paul is talking about here, to speak the same. So you might know this in our, in our own culture. I don't think any of you are in politics in this room. But you might see this more on social media when you might get into that heated debate with that, that long-distant aunt that you've never spoken with, and you start, to, you start an argument because you didn't like what they said on Instagram or Facebook or whatever it might be, and then you begin this argument that never gets you anywhere and kills the relationship that you may or may not have had with this person because you want to win. You want to win that argument, and you will, you will take people out in order to do so. So Paul is saying that is not the spirit we are to have in the church. The second thing he says is that there be no divisions among you. So this is Paul telling them that whatever divisions, whatever splits that you have currently with others, you need to mend them. And you need to do it immediately. Why? Simply because you're a Christian. You're Christians now, and these other Christians, Jesus tells us, are our brothers and sisters. Paul gives practical application to this in Romans 12, 17 through 21, when he tells the church there, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And that is the way we are to live towards one another, but also, Paul is capitalizing on Jesus' words, that's also how we are to live to those outside the church as well. Jesus says to love your enemies, and that's what he calls us to. Thirdly, Paul says they are to be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Now, to understand what Paul is saying here, you have to understand that the underlying problem uh, that the Corinthians had was a a losing sight of Christ crucified. They, They lost sight of their vision of Jesus being crucified for their sins. And this has led them to confusion about who God is, 
And then that has led them to have muddled thinking about who they are. And as a result, as we all do, they fell back to their default, the ways of the city. So how often, I wonder, when you are struggling with who God is, maybe you're walking through a particular suffering or some sort of confusion in your, in your, in your family or your, or, your, or your history or whatever it, may, it might be, how often um, does this affect how you see yourself? But how often does it affect how you see the world as well? Do you tend to default to your old ways of thinking and believing? I know I do. And I would suggest to you that when you are sensing this sort of, of thinking and believing, when you, when you find yourself kind of leaning into the default of, of your old life and this, and this world, uh, to draw your mind back to the person and work of Christ and to meditate upon that truth. Now, now you do this, obviously you want to do this through the reading of the Bible, uh, but another good way to do this is to, is to seek out a, a trusted Christian friend and tell them, I am really struggling with this. Preach the gospel to me. For real, like preach the gospel to me right now. I need to hear it again. I need to be reminded of its truth. I need to be reminded of its power. I need to be reminded of, uh, I need to be able to see that, uh, hear that you see God at work in me. Preach the gospel to me. And that might be with your spouse or, or a, another friend or, or whoever. But practice that, even this week, even today. So to be united in mind in the same, in the same judgment, um, just so you know, was not a call to uniformity. Paul was not calling the church to be robots. He wasn't just, he wasn't just saying, hey, look at this model and I want, you to, I want you to practice it verbatim. I want you to say these particular words. I want you to move in this particular way. Paul wasn't saying that. Rather, he's calling them to bring their opinions and their worldviews in line with the gospel that they have received. Because this is what unifies a church in a fractured world. Not your politics, not your socioeconomic status, not your race, but the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when you and I do this, a watching world can't help but to pay attention to it. Amen. Let's take a moment of silence to reflect upon these things that we've just heard, and then I'll close us in prayer.